welcome to the Rock Music Alliance interview sessions. I am your host, Cole Coleman. On the show today, we know his bass playing from Dio Disciples and Dio Returns, as well as Ingve Malmsteen and more. When we come back, I'll be speaking with Bjorn England. Attention guitar players, join the Thimble Slide Revolution and free your slide finger. With its patented shape, you can slide and fret while wearing the Thimble Slide. Visit thimbleslide.com. That's thimbleslide.com. Claudio Pesavento is here from Mahogany Rush and Chris Squire Band. How you doing, Claudio? Hola, amigos. Hola. Hey, and we are talking with Bjorn England today. Bjorn, you have led a very busy career performing with and recording for a long list of artists, including Soul Sign, Dio Disciples, Ingve Malmsteen, Quiet Riot, Helgen, Tony McAlpine, Lizzie Borden, and still many more. What is the latest happenings from the world of Bjorn England, and which bands are you currently active with? Well, it, Dio Disciples turned into Dio Returns. It's the same band, but we're incorporating uh, Ronnie James Dio Hologram. So we are running under that name just so that the market won't be confused, so that they know what they're they're paying for. <laughs> Buying a ticket for Dio Returns, they know they're getting the hologram and, and so forth. So um, basically pretty much the same thing uh, other than that. And then, uh, and, and of course, I got my own band, Soul Sign, with, with Mark Bowles on vocals and Mike Cancino on drums and, and Jan Mengling on guitar. And uh, we're working on a new album. And that's exciting. We're, we're happy about what we got so far. And uh, that should be coming out uh, hopefully by the end of the year. Um, and um, I have a new project I'm about to record bass for as well called Of Gods and Monsters, which is um, a, a band with Kevin Gucher on, um, on vocals. He's the main guy. It's this thing. And uh, Ira Black on guitar and Simon Wright on drums. So... Um, we're, we're excited about what we got and uh, uh, can't wait to put it out as well and get on the road. Uh, so far, we have a couple of shows booked in July on the East Coast, so we're trying to fill some more dates around that time as well. So, yeah, I'm, st I'm staying busy and, and as well with as doing uh, sessions for other, you know, various projects, songs here and there, guest appearances and, and full albums as well. So, um no, no uh, uh, silent moments over here on my end. <laughs> yeah, you are definitely one of the busiest guys I've spoken with this year, for sure. That, that, that uh, Dio Returns, that sounds amazing. So you guys are performing with a hologram of Ronnie James Dio. That's fantastic. And how does, um, how does that look? I mean, have you guys rehearsed that yet, or is it still in the planning? We have. We did um, a brief tour of Europe in 2017. Then we took a break and upgraded the hologram, and uh, it looks really nice now. And in 2019, we did a U.S. tour. Uh, there were some cities we didn't hit, and uh, um, quite a few that we'd like to go back and, and play. Like you know, we got Chicago, we got Seattle, we got Nashville, and, and, and several more, uh, including Canada. So. Another uh, North American thing uh, is in the works, but uh, when is hard to say. But yeah, so so about half of the set is um, approximately is with the hologram, and about half of it is just you know like the Dio Disciples band basically playing. And even with the hologram, we got we got our singers uh, Tim Rip Rowans and Oni Logan come out and sort of join. Uh, forces with Ronnie and and it's a real fun and exciting show. So we're we're happy to we're we're proud of it and we're looking forward to presenting it again when we get a chance. So yeah, I, I can't wait to check that out. So to make that work live, uh, did they take uh, recordings of Dio singing live? Like did they isolate his track from some sort of a live recording, or how do you make that work? They did. They took uh, for what recordings they could find. A um, lot of them are official recordings that are out. So yeah, the vocals are isolated as much as they can be live. You know, they got a little bit of leakage through the, the vocal mic, but they did a really good job and they picked performances that they thought were some of his best and and took vocals from that exactly. So it's it's like you close your eyes, it's like basically like it feels like we're we're playing with Ronnie and, and, and the fact that most of us 
um, everyone except for me, were worked with Ronnie for about 20 years or so. So they, you know, it, it's working and playing around his voice is it sounds really natural and it's uh, it's it's quite exciting in that for that you know in that sense. Yeah, like I say, I, I can't wait to check that out. Yeah. Now I understand you're the founding member of Soul Sign. Uh, are there other founding members, or is Soul Sign like your solo project? Well, it's it's my band, so to speak, so far. Um, but we're we're a team as much as possible. Um, the, the members now have been around for about ten years in the band, and Mike Cancino, the drummer, great drummer, great friend, great team member, and so is Mark Bowles and and Jan on guitar. Every, everyone is like uh, it's like our band. You know, I'm I'm the founder and everything, and the lineup has changed through the years, but um, it's definitely band as much as it can be. So. It's been around for really quite a while. Uh, you know, was there a particular motivation in forming Soul Sign, and, and when did the band solidify? Well, it's, it's through the years. I mean, ever since the, the mid '90s, after I, I got off the road with Quiet Riot, I was like, I, I always, and even before that, I started writing stuff, and I kind of wanted to do my own thing. It was just the fact that I've always been involved and always been a side guy. I always like wanted to make a living playing music. I got pulled. Uh, in different directions as a session guy and as a, you know, um, a hired gun, so to speak. And it sort of got busy and sidetracked in that way. So the band has been on hold for, for many periods at a time, and, and uh, which is, you know, not a great thing when you're trying to push something and get something off the ground. But So it's been around for a while, but it's, it's just now lately that we're kind of picking it back up and kind of pushing... This is, you know, the latest lineup that is, you know, and without a doubt, without a doubt, the strongest. So, yeah. You know, has singer Mark Bowles uh, from Ingve Malmsteen, has he been involved with Soul Sign from the beginning or was there a, a different singer? It was a different singer. Michael Olivieri was on the first album. Um, he used to sing with Leather Wolf. He's a great, great guy, great singer, uh, great writer, great, uh, great stage presence. He just kind of wanted to do his own thing and kind of pull away more from the heavier rock and do his own pop solo stuff. So that was kind of like his reason for stepping aside. And he even said, hey, you guys need a, someone who can really give everything justice and give it, you know, the time and dedication that you guys need. So I had just met Mark um, working with Uli, John Roth, together. And so I asked Mark if he's, he was interested and he said yes. So... Rest is history, basically. So, yeah. Now, uh, what has it been like for you during this past year, the year of the COVID pandemic? You know, how has it how has it affected your career? Wow. Well, we'll have to see. <laughs> it's hard to say yet. Everything's kind of like, but but so far, I mean, it probably not any different than it's affected anybody else i guess i feel like we're all in the same boat so i don't feel like it's 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 been you know more devastating probably to myself than anybody else so i don't feel like you know i'm i'm a victim and more so than anyone else but of course it's been strange it's been mentally i think straining for a lot of people and and well we got all this time but always at the same time when you you know as any writer or musician knows that like you can't just sit down and it's not like working at a, at, at a factory when you're just doing the same thing with your arms and you have to think every day. Yet when you sit down and work with music, you have to be mentally uh, prepared and, and, uh, and, and fit for it, you know. And, and I, I don't think this pandemic has been necessarily good in that sense. It's made people depressed and it's made people sometimes physically uh, not as active. And, you know, it's just uh, it's been rough, you know, but... Um, I think a lot of people that I talk to have been positive, including myself as much as possible. I've been taking long walks and been doing things that I necessarily didn't do as much before, which is, you know, been good. Cooking more at home, knowing what I'm eating, you know. <laughs> yeah. It's just good things came from it, obviously. But um, And, you know, obviously the time of sitting down and writing has been more and, and that's good. It's just, I, I think it's been mentally straining and, and uh, for that reason and financially that most people need to, at this point, get back out again. But, um, well, you know, as far as like how it's affected my career, I think we'll have to, <laughs> when things get back up and running again, we'll have to see that. But, uh, 
you know, I just, I think it's just a matter of, like anything, just, just don't give up. You just hang in there and, and things will, will work themselves out kind of thing. Yeah, I, I see from uh, uh, several people that I've spoken with, yeah, there seems to be a general feeling that the, the last year has been on pause. You know, everybody feels like, well, everything's on suspension, you know. Um, but, but at the same time, a lot of people have been focusing in on, well, you know, I guess I'll focus in and, and write more music or record. So uh, I, think, I think most of us in the music world have, have, have really remained still active. Yeah. I think so. And, you know, you just make the best of it and you control the things that you can control. And that's like the, the I think that's one of the biggest keys to success. It's just that, like, don't focus on the things you can't control and, and like working and, and writing and recording more to have that in, in you and your backpack when you when things get back up and running again so that you can go out and play and have to worry about running back to the studio every minute and uh I think a lot of a lot of artists will benefit from that. They, you know, now that it's you know um, doesn't pay as much, and 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 it's as far as like recording stuff and releasing stuff, it could be good for bands to not have to worry about spending the time during the touring season when they, you know, doing that. So that that's a that's a good thing, I think, and you know, it would be less stressful for the bands. They'll be like, well, we have another album we can we can put out whenever we want, and that kind of thing. So. I think it'll be good. So it, we'll we'll see. I think once it's up back up and running, people are, you know, mentally prepared. And I think also taking a step back sometimes is for anyone in life, any person, and take a look within and themselves and step take a step back and maybe look at the world from a different view. I think it's it can be really healthy. I think maybe this was the, the break that the world needed in that sense, you know. It does feel that way. It feels like a nice break. And uh, we've had a good long break, uh, but we're all ready to get back now. I think. <laughs> How about you, Claudio? Do you feel that way? Has it been uh, has this this been a year to kind of pause and regroup? What do you think? For healing and for uh, taking care of yourself, actually, to do stuff for yourself and get your shit together, basically. I mean, but you know, meditation, something that I do, it helps help me a lot to wake up in the morning and. Be positive, you know, because you know there's nothing going on really. You have to make it happen on your own, really. I mean, everything you have to make it happen. So yeah. Writing, you know, writing helps. You know, walking, walking is good. If it was in Sweden, I would go, you know, skiing, but I'm not. Yeah. Oh, it's still snowing there. Um, well, that's a great question. In the south, it, it, the weather is very different. So there, we, you know, they didn't. I'm from the south and. Since before I moved here, which is 28 years ago, we didn't have much snow since the 80s. In the 80s, when I was a kid, when I was really little, I'd go skiing and ice skating and play hockey and stuff like that outside all the time. Yeah. They don't really just don't. They get a day of snow and it melts now if, if they're lucky, you know. And But in the north of Sweden, they usually, they'll have snow typically till probably the beginning of April, usually. You know, so I have two. I had two brothers. One of my brothers lives up in in the north part, and and it's uh, yeah, they can definitely. It snows in a you know October, November, and then it sticks around, and you know they can go skiing the whole winter. So so they're lucky in that sense, you know. And the weather's drier. It's colder, but it's dry cold, so it's actually more comfortable too. So yeah. Hey Bjorn, uh, I see that you've also been a bass teacher at Musicians Institute in Hollywood. Are you still doing any teaching, uh, even privately? I am. Yeah, I do um, online one-on-one um, -on -one lessons, and I do some master classes and things like that too. Obviously, live when when we can and and stuff like that. So yeah, that's, that's something I've always been doing, and <clears throat> excuse me, that I enjoy doing. And it's I think it's great for if you if anybody who could teach or can or want to teach, I think it's good for your your own approach to the instrument and how you constantly are you're you're um you know reminded and refreshed and you take a look at what yourself and what you're doing you know when when i'm teaching other people i go like well hold on a second how am i doing this and maybe i should think of this more often it happens all the time and it's it's really healthy and i keep telling my students that too like if you're really really good at the basics it it goes a long way so yeah, there, there used to be an old saying that I heard people say, and that's, if you want to learn how to do something really well, teach it. Right. Yep. 
That's it's very true. And it's interesting because not everybody – teaching and playing are like two different things. Like there are amazing players that can't teach and they don't want to teach. You know, so it's it's definitely a, an, an art in its own, and it's 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 tricky. It can be very tricky because you know each student is different, and they think differently, and they want different things, and they learn at different speeds, and they want to learn different styles. So, and physically, their hands are different. You know, so it's uh, it's quite a challenge sometimes. Some things you cannot teach either. You know, either you got it or you're not. I think so. Yeah, absolutely. You know, um, but at, on the same, you know, in the same way, like I remember, like growing up, I didn't know um, how musically inclined I was till I had learned to play the bass physically and got the coordination down. Then I realized, wow, okay, I, I got some talent here. But before that, I don't think I realized necessarily the the extent of it. So, but you definitely, I, I think you have to have both. Like you have to. You can't have one with the, without the other. I mean, you can't. You, you know, you need a certain level of talent, obviously. You know. Let's uh, let's pause right here for a minute, guys, and we'll do a little business for the Rock Music Alliance. We'll be right back. It's time that rock music has its own awards: the RMA Awards, its own scholarships, charity events, and more. And only you can make it happen by joining the Rock Music Alliance and voting in the RMA Awards. You can join as either a musician, an industry professional, or if you just love rock music, you can join as a patron of rock. Everyone can join, and everyone gets to vote. Join the Rock Music Alliance. Go to rockmusicalliance.com. That's rockmusicalliance.com. This is Johnson Pesta from The Cult. Join the Rock Music Alliance. Yeah! And we're back. And uh, Bjorn, uh, take us back in time now to your beginnings. Uh, I understand you started your musical career in 1984 as a drummer. That what pulled you over to bass? Well, uh, you know, to to rewind a couple of years before that, 82, 83, I had a friend who um, was heavily into punk music. I had already started, you know, I was listening to to, to rock and roll already, but. Um, we, we formed a band. We had a band together. We played like homemade instruments and you know, drumsticks on a pillow and things like that. I, I was sort of more pulled towards the drums. I, I, I sort of felt like it was more of a natural instrument to me. Um, but I always was like had an eye on the bass and I was like, well, maybe that would be for me. But I hadn't really played much bass or even tried playing the bass. So my mom uh, came home one day and she had like this this had bought a used small like like a like a kid's kit for me and i set it up and i was actually surprised she'd do that i'm like does she realize how much noise this is going to make so i'm like starting to practice and then i take take a break and i look out the window and i see the neighbors talking to each other and they're like glancing over i'm going like well this is you know we lived kind of lived in a tight neighborhood and and i was like well this is not going to work you know and then and then i was like well you know all these stands and screws and things and with the bass I can just plug in and play and I can be all up in, in the front and run around like you know like uh, you know you know you can, you can be more part of the show exactly more part of the show and more mobile and uh, so I quickly I quickly switched and uh, never looked back and then I never looked to be like well maybe should I play guitar or maybe drums it was just pretty much like this is for me and, and I was actually surprised because most of my friends play drums or guitar and I was like why why isn't anyone playing bass and, and I thought bass was just as cool so it was it worked out great so well it made, made a good choice then to uh, to be in demand right exactly and you know and then when once you start uh, practicing you realize oh the bass is quite hard to play because everything's bigger and longer and bigger strings so if you want to play Good, if you want to be a good bass player, you got to work pretty hard. You know, play your exercises and play your scales and learn learn the notes and learn the theory so you can connect the dots and connect the chords and all that stuff. And unfortunately, that's something I think got lost in uh, already in the '80s. Unfortunately, when you know, kind of stagnated. You know, rock and roll bands brought in the second guitar player. They brought in a keyboard player. And, and stuff that things were they were like well now we have these extra musicians now the bass player doesn't have to play as much mm -hmm. and uh, 
And it's sort of never changed from there. I mean, I think I think like in the early '90s, although I, I, I wasn't a huge fan of those alternative bands that came in, but like those bass players actually played a little bit more, and uh, that was a good thing. But uh, I miss the old days with with uh, John Paul Jones and John Entwistle and yeah. the Squire, and you know, the list is long. I, I can't even think of that many players that even play remotely close to that anymore, and, and it's it's really a shame, you know. And it's a shame that you have to look into, you know. No offense, I like jazz music too, but like you have to look at jazz to find players that are bass players that are actually, you know, really really good at their instrument. And as far as like you know moving around. I mean, obviously, there's a lot of good bass yeah. players that are, are, are tightened in the pocket and play. They play good basic bass, but, you know, there's just so much you can do with the instrument. I mean, and... Uh, I was listening yeah. to, uh, to Eddie Van Halen's son playing with them, and he does, he does a lot of rounds. You know? Yeah. I like that, you know. Mm-hmm. He did. He, he took it like he played a little different. He didn't play exactly like like Mike's bass lines. He oh. kind of did his own okay. thing a little bit and added some some distortion and kind of took it to another another not level, but yeah, level or the different. He did a different thing with it, and, and, and I like that. I mean, I, I I don't see especially when you're in a three piece when there it's just drums, bass, guitar, and vocals. You got bass in there. You got to play and you got to fill and you got to. It's just uh, I'm, I'm surprised still to not see more players that, <laughs> that play, you know, um, walking crazy well, bass lines, you know. So, well, it's musicality comes with that, you know. You have to be musical to play that, obviously. That's true. That's a good creative, point. Creative. Yeah, I think so too. I think I, unfortunately, and I, I don't, shouldn't say this because it's not necessarily true, but I think a lot what happened in the eighties was in in the, in the rock and hard rock and metal was like they you, the, the, the laziest guy played bass. You know, they were like, well, you can just stand in the background and, and play eighth notes. You know, and I think unfortunately some of the most amazing bands like Judas Priest and Easy Easy, nothing against that, they worked for those bands, but. I don't think it worked for other bands. So other bands thought, well, they do it, we can do it. No, it's not like that. There's only one ACDC, there's only one Judas Priest. I'm sorry. It worked for them, it doesn't work for anybody else. You know, that 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 was my opinion. And I think that's what, what it was. People saw how successful those bands were. As a bass player, I kind of looked more at like maybe like Iron Maiden and I was like, Well, you can play like that as well. You know, you can and you can be a guy like that and run around on the stage and not be by the drum kit, you know, so it's uh, <laughs> it's a choice. <laughs> really. You were doing that with Ingve? What's that? You were doing that with Ingve? With, with Ingve, I was kind of passive in the first few years, and um, you know, because I, I was like, you know, I didn't want to step on it, you know, his, it, you know, it's his show, and then I realized towards the end, I was like, well, maybe I should be a little more active on stage, you know. I, I thought I was too passive for a while there, and uh, and uh, yeah, but. Uh, no, he he was great to work with, man. I it's uh, um, and I never had, in fact, in five years, never any issues with him. So that was great, great times, good memories. Uh, Bjorn, uh, now you're from Sweden. Uh, what town in Sweden? Oh, <laughs> Växjö, V A X J O. So even in Swedish, it's a weird spelling. So it's V A with two dots, X J O with two dots. So it and, doesn't and, get any more weird than that, you know. How do how do you say it? Vekhe. It actually means road lake. So it's like there was a couple of roads that met by this lake that is pretty much in downtown. Uh, and uh, that's where the name came from back in, oh my God, I think like in the 12, 1300s, something like that. So it's an old, old city. And uh, uh, growing up, what got you into music to begin with? And are there any, any of your family members uh, musicians too? And not much at all. I mean, they played around a little bit, but like it came from basically my friends that I was hanging out with. And uh, that's where I got introduced to all these bands. I mean, even kissed when I was like six, seven years old. And then, you know, I was t- 11, 12, 13, you know, Judas Priest, ACDC, Iron Maiden, you know, and uh, Black Sabbath and, and all this stuff. And and uh, any any progressive rock? Um. Not a whole lot, to be honest with you. Uh, but I like that stuff, but it, it, it was something that later on was introduced to me, I think, through. I think it came from, like, you know, when you start playing more and you get in bands, you know, 
band members who were introduced that kind of stuff to you. <laughs> so, so going through your teens and even early twenties, were were you doing cover bands and local original bands? It was mostly original music, and it was what what kind of happened was like, and I think it was like a lot a lot the same here, where you're in one band, and if you played with another band, it was like you were cheating on your band, you know. So, but. People in bands in Sweden were religious about rehearsing. You, you rehearse twice a week and there's no excuses. So a lot of bands, I and mean, you see like bands coming out of Sweden, like whether it's In Flames or Hammerfall or any of those bands, a lot of them came from that mentality where they, they were in the same band for 10 years before they even got famous and, and they really got to, to know each other and got tight. There's a lot of that work, the Swedish work ethics, and it's the same. The school was the same way too. You'd have... We didn't have a lot of like special ed and you know special schools for, for for you know people with special needs and all that stuff. Everybody was in the same classroom and and everybody was just you know supposed to do their homework and sit and be quiet and listen and pay attention. So um, it, that that whole work ethic and maybe together with the the horrible weather, you know, it's perfect to sit inside and practice your scales when it's raining outside. <laughs> So I don't know. I don't really know. People ask me that all the time. What is the answer? I mean, genetics, too. And I think also like all the Swedish folk music, we'd sing songs in school every day. Sometimes every morning, the teacher would sit behind the piano. We'd start the day with singing Swedish folk songs. And so you, you, you and then they were very melodic. A lot of that stuff. So you train your melodic sense that way, I think, from when you're little. You know, as far as like developing musicality and stuff like that, too. So that was helpful, I think. And, you know, I don't know. I, I think it's but to get back to your question, it was mostly original music, um, some covers. But I remember even my first bigger show when I was 18, <clears throat> the band I was in it was a pretty good band, local band. We, we got paid from the first show I ever did with them. And I always got paid pretty decently playing gigs back there. And. We play original music, and we were unknown and stuff like that. We're always getting paid, so that was very different from <laughs> coming to Los Angeles and and uh, working. I had the same experience. In Argentina, I, I was practicing. Well, I was playing with three bands at the same time, but we practice a lot, and we get right. we play original music. We never play mm -hmm. covers. So when I come to North America, I say, "Well, when, when are we gonna rehearse?" So we, rehearsed, we had like a two rehearsals, and then the guitar player, his name Frank Moreno, he comes to sound check <laughs> to play the parts. And then we go on tour, you know, it was just like that. that that's exactly it, because, you know, I remember growing up in Sweden, like we, we'd rehearse the songs to death sometimes, you know. That, that work ethic was great if you're recording or something, but sometimes you're not really practicing until you're on stage because you know you know how it is the rehearsal room is one thing the stage is yeah. one thing and that's one thing i realized too when i came here was like there wasn't a lot of rehearsals it was like you rehearse very briefly and then you go on tour and to me that was that was shocking and and it was the same with everyone i worked with quiet yeah. riot ingve dio disciples every you know if you play all the songs once you're lucky you know yeah. <laughs> so and then you just better you better do your homework and you know, and and that's that's a good lesson learned and I think that's the case regardless if you if you have twenty rehearsals or one rehearsals if you don't do your homework it's you know yeah. you, you're not going to make the gig anyway so mm -hmm. interesting uh, you you mentioned coming to Los Angeles uh, what was it that brought you here to L A. Um, I, well, obviously the, the music climate and the and also the the weather climate. Uh, but yeah, I came in '91 and traveled around with a friend all over the United States, and we spent four days in LA. And we, we uh, rented a car, convertible car, and just drove all over the place. And we just fell in love with the city and the weather, and uh, we just couldn't believe that a place could be that hot and still comfortable, and no clouds and sunny every day, and so, you know, and it had a lot of, you know, uh, bars and clubs and music venues and things like that. Sunset Strip. And was that? <laughs> Sunset Strip. Yeah, Sunset Strip. 
Yeah. This, what, is, what, this is pre-grunge and pre-COVID. <laughs> <laughs> hey, what, what, what year was that happening at Bjorn? This was 91. So this is at the tail end of it. And then 93 is when I moved here. And that, that was quite devastating because that was like uh, somebody had uh, dropped a nuclear bomb on, on the Sunset Strip. And it was, uh, I was in a band uh, in, in, uh, at the time and remembering passing out flyers like a couple of times a week. And I remember being behind the whiskey on like a Tuesday or Wednesday night. And every time I go in the middle of the week behind to hand out flyers, there'd be like two cars in the parking lot. And you walk inside, and there's like three people watching the band, and I'm like, "Wow, this is yeah. definitely not like the '80s." <laughs> yeah, I can remember that that time. You know, that that was when the Seattle grunge sound had hit the scene, and it it just cleared out everything. It was really an amazing moment in time to see that happen. Yeah, yeah. and the it, sound um, thing was nothing against the grunge bands at all, but it was like bands that weren't even really. Uh, interested in playing grunge started playing grunge because they thought that well if we play grunge maybe we'll get a record deal so <laughs> it's uh, quite yeah that's that's the same it's it's a tough thing for sure but you really do have to stay true to yourself uh i i do think that there's some transparency when you're playing music so i, I tend to think that you know if you're faking it the audience is going to see that they're, they're going to figure it out mm, absolutely and you're always chasing the coattails of what's what's already happened you know what i mean it's if you stay true to yourself, things come back around, and uh, you, you you learn that the hard way, or or you just don't fall for it, and you'll see it happen. So. <laughs> so, guys, let's pause our conversation here and listen to these important words from the Rock Music Alliance and the RMA Awards for rock, metal, and prog music. Hey, I'm Cole Coleman, here to talk a little bit about the Rock Music Alliance. The Rock Music Alliance is an international organization of musicians, industry, and those of the public who are patrons of rock. Our main focus is to produce the RMA Awards for rock, metal, and prog music. And you can be a part of it all. When you join the Rock Music Alliance, you can send in music entries for yourself and your favorite established artists. And you get to vote in the RMA Awards. So join the Rock Music Alliance and be a part of it all. Don't wait. Be proactive. Join and vote. Go to rockmusicalliance.com. That's rockmusicalliance.com. We're back with Bjorn Englund. Hey, Bjorn, uh, what's the moment where you cross over into the professional artist world? You know, How did that happen and who is the band? I think it was a gradual thing because, like I said, I, I growing up in Sweden, I was always getting paid playing, but I wasn't a full time musician, you know. Uh, so moving to LA '93, I think it all started with um, going on a road with Quiet Riot back in '95, coming back into town, uh, starting. I started writing songs, obviously, and <clears throat> started forming a band. And but at the same time, I was like, well, the music climate was strange, so it was like. It was rough forming a band and say, hey, listen, let's uh, take this music that's no longer popular and try to get a record deal. So I decided I'm going to be a working bass player. And uh, that's kind of where it, it all happened. So like mid-90s, around 96, I just started doing a lot of sessions and, and uh, just taking all gigs that came my way and, and uh, just said, listen, I, I'm not going to turn anything down. So even if somebody said, hey... I got a reggae gig or a jazz gig over here. Have you done this before? I would say yes. And I'd be driving to the gig and going like, what did I just tell the guy? I just lied to the guy. And, <laughs> and I would I would show up and play the gig. And they most of the time, they called me back again. And and uh, and then from there, you know, I you know, felt like I grew as a bass player playing all these different styles. And, and uh, I, it was really healthy, you know. And uh, also... I think when you when you don't allow yourself to do anything else for a living, you, you're forced to playing, and that's the best practice you can get is to go and play a gig or go into the studio and record. And if you do that every day, you'll you'll see how you'll you 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 grow in the real world, so to speak. And that's sort of when when things started to I became, well, around the age of 25, became like a full time professional, and never really looked back. Since then, so it's been 
It's been great. It's been some rough times, and there's, I, I think there's a lot of things I did, a lot of uh, that I think a lot most people wouldn't even think of dealing with. But I, I just had, to me, that there was no plan B, and I think that's really the key sometimes. And you know, interesting. Now, uh, how how did it how did it happen with Quiet Riot? Like, what happened to get you involved with the band? It's interesting you say that because I think it's the only pretty much gig I got by not knowing anyone in the band at all. I'd never met any one of them. And uh, um, I was actually working at a 24-hour gym at a time, and, and I got to know most of the clients pretty well. And, and one night, uh, this, this Australian girl that she would come in, and her and her friend, they would always talk a lot, and the, especially the one girl. And then one night she came in with the uh, LA Weekly, and she threw it on the desk. I was working the front desk, and she said, listen, check it out, Quiet Rise looking for a bass player. So open it up and say, hey, well, the, the original lineups are reuniting, but, uh, you know, uh, Rudy or Orchuk didn't want to, or didn't have, they were busy and couldn't rejoin. And, and I, so they said, hell, send a demo here and a picture and a bio. And I send it in and, and uh, Kevin DeBro called me back and personally and said, he, he said, well, I think your style would fit perfectly to the band he said you sound like John Entwistle and I'm like wow that's pretty cool so uh, and that's what we like that's what we want so you come in and audition and and the rest is history so they, they told me they got about 120 demo tapes and they had about 40 guys try out so I was uh, quite flattered when they asked me so amazing so it was an ad mm-hmm. yeah amazing amazing now how did you get into Ingve Malmsteen's band or how did we get involved with him um, I had known his drummer for actually, actually, accidentally back in the MySpace days. Uh, was that Patrick? Yeah, it, I accidentally stumbled on his profile on MySpace, and I was like, "Who's this guy?" And his place with England. I'm like, "That's interesting." I'll just send him a message to say hi, and I said, "You know, just to uh, you know, why not?" You know, and he said, "But he said he lived in Miami or or West Palm Beach, Florida." And then he responded and he said, well, as a matter of fact, I'm in L.A. right now visiting, so let's have coffee. You know, he doesn't drink coffee, you know, but, well, we, you know, <laughs> but we met, you know, we, I picked him up somewhere and he had a skateboard with him and, and uh, we went into a coffee shop and hit it off as friends like right away. And, and then, uh, you know, a little time went by and he said, you know, I think we, you know, Engbe is going to be needing a bass player pretty soon and I think you fit perfectly, so... Um, I think it was around 2005. I gave him around a, a right to sound check when they were touring in, in Los Angeles. We were hanging out, and he said, "Well, if I hang out here with you in Hollywood, can you give me a right to sound check tomorrow in Ventura?" And I said, "Yeah, no problem." So uh, we drove up there, and I said hi to Ingve, and the bass player was uh, not feeling well, so he had a pretty bad cold and things like that. And then, and then he wanted, you know, Ingve always does long sound checks, by the way, very long sound checks, and then. You know, he decided to go to the bathroom, and then Patrick said, "You want to grab the bass?" And the rest is history. So I played a song with them, and and they, they seemed to like it. Two years later, they had a show at the at the Nam show at the Fender booth, and um, they called me and said, "Hey, we need a bass player. Ingvay doesn't have a bass player right now. Can you come in and and play ten or eleven songs? No rehearsal. Just get up and play." <laughs> and I'm like, at the NAMM show? Are you kidding me? <laughs> In front of musicians? <laughs> Where every single person will hear if you make the, make the slightest mistake. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I don't think I even made one mistake, to be honest, and, and which is, you know, pretty, you know, uh, hard with, and, and when you play music like that. But it's uh, so he asked me pretty much right away if I was interested in, in touring with him. So, Oh, it's way cool. Now, how about uh, Uli John Roth? How did you meet up with him and get to tour and do shows? It, this, funny you ask that because Uli was actually at that show and he was standing on my side of the stage watching the show. And I get off the stage and he looked at me and go like, that was incredible. You didn't make one mistake. Like, now you have to play with me too because I don't like to rehearse either. <laughs> <laughs> That's so good. he's such a funny guy, and and uh, and it was great because that's how I met uh, Mark Bowles, and you know, we, and then you know things just kind of snowballed. Mark Bowles had a band with with Tony McAlpine, and uh, 
Mark called me to come in and, and audition for them, and it was Virgil Donati on drums. Um, nothing happened to the band, but Tony almost immediately after that audition asked me to, to, to tour with him with his instrumental music. So it was just it shows you how like one gig can kind of like just snowball into all these different things. And Mark's been in my band Soulslight now for a while too, and we're great friends. So it's uh, you know looking back, it was a great opportunity. Yeah, that's that's a theme that we hear again and again uh, talking with people is it's it's who you know. I mean, it's um, you you have to have the skills and all that. But once you get into the business, it really is, you know, one gig leads to another because you knew somebody who was in one band and got into another and they remembered you and called you, you know, so it's a lot of networking, a lot of who you know. And oftentimes, at least here in Hollywood, it's, uh, you know, it's going down to the clubs and hanging out, maybe having a drink at the Rainbow and you just, you just you just never know who's who's going to be at the uh, at the bar next to you. Just be cool with people, and and I think also coming in and playing gigs, always be imp- very prepared because what it leads, it's like an investment in your future. And, and I knew this; my intuition told me that this one show with Ingve, if I do this one well, it's going to really help me. I just knew that. I, I just had a feeling that this is going to be a good one. So, yes. Yeah. And I've had auditions that I almost didn't go to, and then I decided to go, and it turned into a really good thing. And, and it could be like, well, I don't want to go because I don't know this one song that well, and I'm, you know, kind of, you know, I'm having trouble with something, or, or just I would just say go anyway, go and show up and be on time and do do your best, and you know, people get to meet you and get to know your personality and. That's really where it's at, like your work ethics, your personality, your attitude. Uh, it overrides all these things that, you know, that may be as far as like something that you're not stylistically interested in, some stuff like that. Just, just doing your best is really the key. So how did it happen for Dio Disciples? You know, what got you into working with them? Well, interestingly enough, I, I had known Craig Goldie, the guitar player, for since I moved to Los Angeles, pretty much. He was teaching a music business class at uh, Musicians Institute, and uh, there would be like 30 people in the classroom. And it was just basically music, uh, like as far as like career advice, kind of. He wrote a book, and he took the book, and he turned it into a class, and he presented it to, to the school, basically. So that's where, how the class started. So every... I hadn't spoken to him in person yet after, you know, a few few uh, classes and uh, you know it's about once a week I think he did this class and uh, but he'd speak he'd be speaking to the class and the last person he'd look at was always me and he would always give me this look of like I know who you are like and uh, and then he, you know I'd run into him through the years and he goes like I always believed in you I knew you had something you know and uh, he never heard me play but it was just kind of like that personal connection that was uh, so uh yeah, when they needed a bass player, it was interesting because uh, I had left Ingve's band, and so had uh, Tim Ripper Owens. We were in Ingve's band together, the singer, one of the singers of Dio Disciples. And so, just out of the blue, I was like, "Well, I'm going to send Tim a message." And I said, "Listen, next time you're in town, let's have a beer." And he said, "Well, I'll be in town tomorrow. I have rehearsals with Dio Disciples." I was like, "Oh, great!" And then he goes, "Well, come down to the rehearsal." And uh, Little did I know, the bass player was on his way out. He was busy doing other things, and and uh, one thing led to another. They, you know, Tim took me to Wendy's house, and at Wendy's house was Oni Logan, and I got to meet Oni, and we were talking for I think an hour and a half before he, I knew who he was, and he knew who I was. We knew of it of each other's names and stuff, but so that was quite interesting. We became friends before we even. Uh, had had the slightest idea that we're both in the business and and I think that was good for our friendship too because it was based on was not based on business it was not based on music you know so um yeah so when they 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 came down to needing a bass player they, it was sort of like well let's let's get Bjorn so we go into uh well our first rehearsal or audition I think they gave me about six or seven songs and we'll learn these songs and come in and you know jam or whatever and then uh, Craig calls me the day before and says well bring some nice clothes because we're going to take pictures tomorrow I'm like okay (laughs) so the photographer's there when I show up and he goes like don't worry about your gear let's come in let's take the pictures you know so we take 
photos for about an hour, and then and then Craig goes like, "Hey, you want to play a little bit?" I'm like, "Okay, sure." <laughs> so it, it also shows you again, like when you have a personal connection, and, and you know you 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 present your your personality and your vibe and all that yeah. to people. That it tells you a lot about yourself and and, uh, and all that stuff. So yeah, that's that's great. That that that's the story of. Uh, you know, being at the right place at the right time, you know, but uh, but but also your personal connection, it just all comes together. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. You have to like as a person, doesn't matter how good you play. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I always tell people that, well, you, let's, for example, you go on tour with someone, it's you're uh, 22 and a half hours off stage, you know, so if you don't get along with people, you're in trouble. You're stuck on a tour bus with with 10 people for you know, most of the day, you, you better like it. Walk you know. home. <laughs> What's that? If they don't like you, you walk home. Exactly. <laughs> <I'm laughs> <the bus> now. <laughs> you get oil spotted. Yeah. <laughs> yep. So we're we're coming up to the end of our time. Just a few more questions, but I was curious. Uh, I thought I read where there was a split amongst the official Dio members, and so, like, are, are there actually two official Dio bands going on right now, or has that resolved? You could say that, yeah. Um, you have the, the band that I'm in that was Ronnie's chosen guys for the last 20 years of, of the, Dio, uh, the Dio band. And then, uh, you know, around the same time after Ronnie's passing, um, you know, two or three of the original guys that was in the very first Dio lineup, Vivian Campbell and... and Vinny Apice and uh, Jimmy Bain decided to get together and play and, and record some original music as well. So um, it's correct. It's there's two bands and uh, um, the other band, the Last in Line, has been yeah. re- releasing a couple of uh, original albums and stuff, or new music, I should say. Um, so we've been working on that as well. But sort of like the the whole uh, Theo Returns thing came up, and we decided to uh, put you know, uh, Dear Disciples on hold for a minute. And, and uh, so, but we're, we're still thinking of possibly in the future to do something and possibly releasing something, original music. Very cool. Hey, I, I saw in your list of credits that you recorded Mask with the band Edge of Paradise. Yeah, they've, they've really expanded their sound in, in recent years. Uh, do you keep in touch with them at all? I do. Uh, it's funny enough, Dave Bates and I are, are really good friends, and, and I met him back in, I believe it was 1996 or 97. Um, I was looking for a guitar player for my own band. He came out and tried out, and he was one of the three chosen people, and they were both so good, uh, extremely good, that we couldn't decide which one to pick. <laughs> we ended up getting a, a friend of mine from from Sweden that was moving over here. He ended up in the band, but Dave and I remained friends, and, and Dave introduced me and said uh, to Robin McCauley back in 2004, said, listen, I got a new band with Robin McCauley. Would you like to join? And that name of that band was Bleed, and a couple of the tracks that ended up on that Mask album was actually recorded uh, during the sessions of Bleed. So they were like songs that Dave and Robin wrote for Bleed, and uh, kind of like, I, I think... Uh, she she changed the lyrics and stuff like that maybe on some of them and they turned into like slightly different songs and stuff like that but that some that those bass parts were actually not intended for bleed so <laughs> it's a very good question interesting you asked that but yeah Dave's a great friend and and uh we keep in touch and, and, and uh, that's good that's good man so uh considering projects in the future uh, would you consider doing a symphonic gothic rock type thing or maybe even progressive rock? Sure. Why not? I'm, I'm open. Good music is good music. So, you know, um, I, you know, as long as the songs are good, I really don't care what style it is, to be honest with you. But, uh, yeah. yeah. So, so you're, you're pretty wide in your taste of music and in your abilities. So yeah, everything kind of goes. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, uh, it looks like the world is uh, going to be opening up this summer, uh, maybe summer into autumn. So what's the what's the next events that you would be doing once everything opens up? Like more recording or are there any, any tours planned? There's more recording. So far, there's only um, a, a couple of dates with of Gods and Monsters, the new band that I'm in. And uh, 
in July, we're going to try to book possibly some other shows around that. These are East Coast shows, and we might do some stuff possibly like in Texas before that and, and stuff like that and try to expand that tour schedule. But um, we have, um, other than that, it's it's uh, uh, sort of tentative stuff as far as with the deer returns. Nothing's been uh, planned uh, as far as tours or anything like that. We got po a possible thing in June, a short thing that we might do um, in Mexico, but it, that's uh, also tentative. So we're still kind of waiting to see. I think a lot of, it seems like, a lot of the agents that that the bands that I'm in there that we're dealing with are sort of like holding off to see what's going to happen for sure before they they make any moves, and I and I can't really blame them at this point. But, yeah. What kind of gear you 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 use, and what what was your base your first base that you got? Oh, interesting. Um, I I have I, my very first base I got was uh, I think a court. Uh, it was a cheaper model that I I actually repainted three times as a kid, and I swapped the pickups and I I scalloped the fingerboard and and when I was 15 years old, and I did all sorts of stuff to it. Um, kind of a good way to learn your, your your craft as far as physically taking care of the instrument and stuff like that. So. I played, I had that bass for probably about three years, I think, until I switched to my first Ibanez, which was 1987. And I had briefly had a P bass. I sold that to to buy another Ibanez in 1991. And that was actually my main bass for like 13 years. And that was the one that I ended up playing on the road with Quiet Riot, as a matter of fact. And, and uh, now I've been, with Ibanez endorsed officially endorsed by Ibanez for five years so it's uh I think it's it's interesting how like something's introduced to you early in life and you and you like something a lot and you, you get familiar with something that's I think that played a, a big role into like my involvement with the company and, and the brand and you know the reliability of the instrument and, and the sound and all that stuff so but uh yeah Very cool, man. Well, Bjorn, that brings us to the end of our time today. Thanks for being here. You're welcome. My pleasure. That's it for my conversation today with Bjorn England. You can keep in touch with Bjorn on social media and even more so on his website at bjornengland.com. Visit thimbleslide.com for the guitar slide that frees your finger. It allows you to slide and fret while wearing it. And visit rockmusicalliance.com and join the Rock Music Alliance so you can vote in the RMA Awards. For the Rock Music Alliance, I'm Cole Coleman. Be well, stay well, and join the Rock Music Alliance. Music